Greg, today we have Crystal Shawanda. Yes, we do. On the on the show. But before we get to that conversation, if we can just take a moment and bow down to our Lord and Savior, Neil Young. You haven't seen this. There's a... Wow. Neil Young. This is what I get for my birthday, is I get a Neil Young candle. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that sacrilege? To who? St. Neil. Like, I don't know. Not to me. It's fine. All right. St. Neil. All right. Uh, um, earlier this week, went to watch Harvest Time, yes. uh, which is the uh, celebrating the 50th anniversary of the release of this album, Harvest by Neil Young. And um, phenomenal. Good thing, good thing you explained what it was for all those that are listening yes. on streaming services and not YouTube. Yes. But go ahead. I sh- showed the uh, the CD. Yes. yes. On camera, because you and I we don't record anymore live, except when we do. Um, so we're not together. I, you know, so that's why I'm showing it to you at, at the camera. Yeah, no. But uh, for any fans of. First of all, for any fans of Neil Young, this is a must-watch documentary. Um, it contains, um, you know, for those who've gone to Neil Young concerts, like there are no two-minute songs. Um, he will take a song and he will just riff. They will just jam, and there's a lot of jamming um, in this documentary. Uh, just phenomenal, phenomenal uh, stuff. Going back to when Neil was in his 20s, um, he calls himself a rich hippie uh, as he's sitting on his, uh, sitting outside his, his ranch uh, that he had at the time. And just an amazing movie. And even for those of you who aren't Neil Young fans, but just are, are appreciative of music, in general, just a phenomenal documentary to watch. So it's, um, I don't know, I'm sure for those who, who subscribe to his, um, uh, to his uh, website, Neil Young Archives, it'll probably show up there, but it might also show up at various festivals uh, throughout the year. So uh, excited to have gone to see that. And, uh, Related to that, Greg, is later this week, this is the week of December the 5th, uh, a new movie premieres at Hot Dogs, Revival 69. Yes. And uh, talked about this with previous guest. Yes, Alan Cross. Cross. But I had an opportunity to see that movie last night. And it is phenomenal. It's like you're you're watching history, like literal music history. Hmm. Um, you're watching the breakup of the Beatles, mm-hmm. um, in, in a way that is not. It's not. It's not. Oh damn! It's the breakup. Of the, you know, there's no fighting involved. It's literally, you know, John Lennon deciding I, I want to play live again. 
Because after a while, the Beatles stopped playing live and they just lived in the studio and just created some amazing albums, some amazing music. But uh, John Lennon wanted to get back out live and there was an opportunity. He didn't get paid for this show. Opportunity to play live in Toronto at some rock and roll revival show. And uh, ends up going there and says, yeah, this is it. This is the end of the Beatles. This is this is what I want to do. Um phenomenal movie there's that there's the introduction of alice cooper um it's just phenomenal phenomenal footage and history uh in that probably more important than woodstock not as popular because it wasn't in the states but probably more important to me in in, in the grand scheme of music hmm. than uh, than woodstock I am looking forward to watching that before we sit down for our chat. Yeah. And uh, let's get on with our conversation with Juno award-winning singer-songwriter Crystal Shawanda. Hi. The following podcast is brought to you by Radical Road Brewery, the best craft beer in the heart of Leslieville. Find them at 1177 Queen Street East. That's Radical Road Brewery. Hey everyone, I'm Crystal Shawanda. I'm a singer-songwriter who sings the blues. I started out in country music and found my way to the blues. I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm from Weequemquam First Nations, and welcome to the music. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Nailed it. Perfect. We're so excited to have you on, Crystal. Um, I think, you know what, actually, we could probably do, though, is uh, we could just, you and I, we'll get Kareem to just leave, and then you and I will just talk about the Manitoulin Island for the for the entire hour. <laughs> that works for you. And then, you know, he can come in and finish off at the end. I don't know if that, so. It no, really but, is a beautiful place. <laughs> it, it is. It is. Um, my my family, and, and I say this with all due respect, my family's been there. I guess my grandchild that was just born will now be our sixth generation out of Sandfield. So, Oh, that's also okay. Sandfield. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So where, where I wanted to start off with is just like, can you, can you talk about, you know, how somebody from Wiki, you know, <laughs> became the musician that they celebrated the, the award-winning musician that you are. And I don't want not to the whole story, but just, you know, from your, your, your childhood and your enjoyment of music at that age. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, I grew up in a family that just absolutely loved music. Everybody in my family, my parents, my brothers, and, you know, it was all genres, you know, no, but we didn't really stick with one genre. There was in my house, there was just good music and bad music. <laughs> and um, and so it was all styles, you know, and so I had a really great music education and my family has really great taste. And even though they are not technically musicians, you know, they know when somebody's out of tune, they know when somebody's tone is not great. And and so I had from blues to rock to country, um, you know, I heard it all and the best of it, you know. So and, and also I noticed from a young age that my family, you know, for them, music was kind of like cheap therapy for them, you know, depending mm -hmm. on the day that they were having, that's the song they would listen to, you know, if they're having a bad day, they would put on a certain song, a certain singer would change their mood around and I would watch it happen. And I just thought it was the most amazing thing to see that, you know, that music 
could um, you know make somebody's day a lot better than it was before. And I like the idea of it. And I like I watched my mom lean on Loretta Lynn records like it oh, was wow. a friend. You know, it was a shoulder mm. to cry on. It was, and um, you know, my mom she was a hardworking mother who stayed home with all three of us kids, and my dad was always working. And eventually, he became a truck driver, so he was gone all the time. So. You know, essentially, my mom was alone all the time. There's no time for friends when you're raising a family and trying to um, keep a household up. And so that's what I, uh, and so watching my mom with Loretta Lynn, you know, I remember holding up a record and saying to my mom, I want to be like her. I want to be a singer. And my mom said, okay, you know, you, you can be anything you want to be. And um, I was fortunate to have two parents who were dreamers and really believe that anything was possible that you put your mind to. And then I grew up in a community, a very tight-knit, close community, you know, where everybody knows each other's business, whether you want them to or not. And, <laughs> and, um, and you know, I also grew up around a lot of trauma, you know, a lot, like a lot of other First Nations communities. Um, you know, I experienced a lot of uh, suicide, depression, alcoholism, addiction, um, abuse, um, you know, not necessarily within my family, but within my extended family, which is my community. And um, you hear things, you know, when you're a kid. And, and I was one of those kids. I was always listening and paying attention and eavesdropping. And, um, and I could see that uh, there was a lot of pain within my community. And I really just wanted to grow up to be a singer so that I could make people happy. Hmm. And my first brush was that was when I was six years old. I sang at a Christmas concert. It was my first performance. And I sang a song called All I Want for Christmas is my two front teeth and my front teeth were missing. <laughs> and I got to a funny part in the song and everybody started laughing. And I remember I could actually feel their happiness. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, wow, this is all I have to do to make people happy is sing. And that was it. My path was set for life. I knew that this is what I wanted to do forever. Wow. Nice. With, Crystal, with all of, you know, these, you, you talk about these traumatic experiences that your community is going through and you just wanted to make people happy um what influenced what you sang about was it there's this darkness or or was it i, I need to sing about light right like or was there a mix of both uh definitely a mix of both you know um i sang the dark and the sad songs because uh they helped me understand what mm. people were going through. Like sometimes when I would hear, um, you know, my parents listened to a lot of Hank Williams and uh, particularly they listened to a lot of, um, you know, Hank Williams did this whole series of songs um, and he did like a persona called Luke the Drifter. And Luke the Drifter would tell these stories that were very hard luck, sad stories, you know, like, and like people who are just trying to put food on the table, like we don't know if we're going to make it through this next year kind of thing, you know? And, and um, you know, I, I listened to my parents struggle about money and then I would hear songs about, you know, about tragedies like the, that, you know, within um, relationships. And that helped me understand what was going on to the grownups around me, like aunts, uncles, cousins. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, you know, and then, and then I also would sing songs of light because they gave me hope. And so I hoped that they would give other people hope if I sang those songs. So, you know, life is both dark and light. So I think it's important to embrace both sides and, you know, that balance helps us, you know, when we, 
dig into that. Like something I always say is like with depression, you know, it's okay to give into it sometimes, you know, curl up in a little ball, cry it out, eat some ice cream, watch some sad <laughs> movies and just cry some more, <laughs> then get back up again. You know, it's just okay to get down and, and uh, you know, when we get down in the dark, we just find our way back to the light. That's hmm. great. That's nice. Um, I think is, is, if I'm not mistaken from my research, your brother is a traditional uh, keeper and counselor. Um, oh yeah. He's a healer. He's a, a medicine. He, sorry, healer. Yes. Yep. Yeah. A healer. Yeah. And I know, I know like, you know, some of your lyrics focus on mental health and I know you're a big, uh, you know, big supporter, not supporter, supporter is not the right word. Um, you know, educating people about missing and murdered indigenous women you know, mm -hmm. girls and, and TS, Two-Spirit. So, um, you know, can you talk a bit about that? And I know that's a whole bunch of stuff wrapped up into one, but I'd love to, if you just sort of talk about, you know, mental health issues and again, missing. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's, um, for me, ever since I was a little kid, um, I knew, like I said, it was all about cheap therapy. You know, music is medicine, music heals. That's my common message is music heals. And, and it really extends from when I was um, a little kid and I first received my spirit name, and um, which is Semakwe, which translates mm. to tobacco woman. And in our culture, tobacco is a sacred medicine. And so when I was given that name, I was told that I carry medicine and that I will help heal people. Um, you know, not like going to cure cancer or, you know, heart problems or something like that, but you'll heal people who are um, hurting internally, mentally, spiritually. And, um, and, and I was told not just my people, but all people. And so that's why it's always been important for me, my personal journey to record mainstream music because I feel like I will be able to reach the masses more. Um, but I've also found a way to incorporate our stories, you know, because um, I wouldn't be a true artist if I wasn't telling the stories that are true to me. It doesn't make sense for me to tell other people's stories, you know. Um, so I try to share the stories that I grew up with, issues that I grew up with. Uh, you know, it could be from depression and suicide to, as you said, missing and murdered Indigenous women and, um, and as well as the Two-Spirit. And so uh, it's just raised, about raising awareness, you know. And my mom always raised me to understand that, you know, because there wasn't a lot of Indigenous representation in media, you know, whether it's music or movies or TV, she always would remind me, you know, you are one of the first um, breaking through. And that's a big responsibility and that I needed to respect that and and um, embrace that responsibility. She would always say it's that doesn't it doesn't mean, you know, it doesn't have to be a burden. You know, they could be quite the blessing if you try to raise awareness about issues that people out in the world don't know that we're dealing with. And, um, and help our people feel represented in that mainstream light, you know? So, um, so those were things, you know, and then I also find ways to do it in production wise, you know, and a lot of my music, whether people realize it or not, sometimes we put hand drums in the track or the big, the bigger powwow drum in the hidden in the track, we lace it in there. Um, I've even had jingle dress, a jingle dress dancer come into the mm. studio and dance and us record um, the sounds that the jingles make because the jingle dress is a medicine dress. It's a healing dress. And so I feel like when I put those in the track, um, that's what we're doing. You know, it just adds to what I'm trying to do is, uh, you know, music heals. Nice.
That's great. That's great. Um, it's it's interesting. Just a, a very personal thing to share. Not personal thing to share, but um, you talk about two spirit, and uh, I have to say, and again, this is giving props to Manitoulin and to the island where we are now. I am telling you, when I was in. A, you know, a teenager in the eighties and I was into new wave and I had the boots and the hair, big hair and everything else. And we'd go to a dance. Um, I was not called the nicest of names by a lot of the locals out of like Mindamoya and, and again, nothing against Mindamoya, but my parents live there. I'm going to be there this weekend. Um, but, <laughs> but what I will say is what I love, what I love to see about like in right before COVID, so 2019 was how the Island and a little current in the communities have embraced pride. Um, I don't know if you've been up for pride at all during the time, but I just like, I got goosebumps because again, it's night and day compared to what I experienced as a kid. Absolutely. Um, you know, I definitely, I, I haven't been there for it, but I've heard about it and I think it's wonderful. It's great because there's lots of kids, like you said, who are growing up in these rural areas and it's, it's even more difficult, you know, um, to feel to find a to feel like you fit in when you're in a rural area when you're growing up like that you feel like you can't talk about it you can't find anybody to relate to um you know uh, so it's and there and there's so many of us who are misfits in different ways and we find each other but it's much more difficult in the rural areas yeah. and um and so it is great to see the change and to see that support um, you know, the more everybody talks about it, the more awareness there is, and the more it makes it easier for kids to come out and talk about it and feel comfortable and confident and um, as it should be. Yep. Yep. Crystal, I want to get to some of your earlier influences that led you first to take the path of country music. But before I get there, you said earlier that your family knows good music. There's only good music and bad music. <laughs> I, I'm really curious. Is, is it bad music? Is there a certain style of music that's bad? Or is it like, yeah, that person just can't hold a tune back? Or is it just Kareem playing the acoustic guitar? What are you going to do in a bad <laughs> uh, No, you know, it's just, uh, when I say bad music, I guess I would say, um, I don't know. My, my family, they love great singers. Mm -hmm. They love great singers. You know, I'm talking about singers before tuners, you know, ah. singers who were stylists, who had range, who had texture, who could do different things with their voices, you know, um, you know, and that varies, you know, and then sometimes it came down to some voices who were storytellers, you know, um, people who were just amazing songwriters who could really mm -hmm. convey the feelings that they were singing um those were greats you know and then um they just didn't like empty music like shall i don't know i guess shallow mm. or soup i don't know i guess contrived music they didn't go for that you know like music that was written for the purpose of trying to be a hit oh. you know um they you know they love album cuts you know they were the mm -hmm. people who listened to album cuts and over and over and you know, and, and would, and, you know, my brothers would be like, you have to listen to this song, even though this is the hit song, this song here is the best song, you know, like that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. And, and I had brothers who were really passionate about that. And, 
And my mom, you know, certain singers would come on the radio. She'd be like, oh, can't stand that. She has that little wimpy poo voice. You know? <laughs> and, you know, my, my mom wanted to hear great singers and, and strong singers and, and, you know, and strong artists, you know, whether they were female or male, people who, um, you know, fought for what they believed in and sang about what they believed in. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, that's, that's what it was for us, you know, good, as far as good and, and bad music. Right. <laughs> what, um, was there a, you know, you talked about Loretta Lynn, your, your mom really loving her. Um, who was it for you? I was definitely Loretta Lynn in the beginning, okay. you know, those were, my mom listened to her the most and my mom was my best friend, mm -hmm. is my best friend. And so I just always wanted to like what she liked and do what she did and be just like her in every way. And so I, you know, I wanted to sing just like Loretta and I, you know, my tone had started to become very much like Loretta's and, and the way she would write her songs, I was very inspired by that. And, um, you know, we watched the coal miner's daughter movie like a million times <laughs> by the time I was like a teenager, you know, and, you know, we would sit there and just learn and absorb and, and the way she watching her stubbornly learn to play the guitar and learn how to write songs. And I was like, okay, this is what I have to do, you know, and, and, you know, borrowing my dad's guitar. And then finally he bought me my own guitar and, and just sitting there and, you know, and it helped that I grew up out in the sticks. I didn't live in the main village. Um, so, you know, I couldn't go out and run around with the other kids because there was no other kids. <laughs> the nearest kid was like, you know, a few kilometers away. And um, and so I would just sit in the basement and sing along and play music. And so it was Loretta Lynn and Patsy Cline in the beginning. Um, and I was really drawn to the stories, you know, and everything they were singing about. I was watching my mom go through that, you know, and it was, and I, I saw how important that was to feel represented, you know, my mom being, you know, she grew up a lot like Loretta, you know, she went from being somebody's daughter to being somebody's wife to being somebody's mother. And, um, you know, she didn't really have a time, time in between for herself. So it was a lot. So in a way, you know, she lived through Loretta's dreams, you know, watching her chase her dreams despite having all these children and um and it inspired my mom you know and and that's i think that's a big reason about why my mom went back to school you know because my mom didn't finish school so she went back and she got her high school diploma and then she went to college and got her degree and you know started working as a teacher working the school system with special needs children and all of that i think was because of you know watching somebody like loretta you know claw their way out of their circumstances and where they grew up and and um the things that hold them back and um and so so loretta was a really big influence for me for a long time and 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 uh you know it was a, people were listening to new country but i was like years behind that i didn't start <laughs> listening to new country till way way later <laughs> so but yeah loretta was a really big influence on me so you know, getting to meet her and sing with her years later was a full circle moment that I got to share with my mom and my parents. And, you know, when I sang on the Grand Ole Opry, Loretta was there and she came out to see us and to meet my mom. And my mom shared stories about how, you know, they both grew up the same way. You know, Loretta grew up in the hills of Kentucky and my mom grew up in the bushes of, of our First Nations reservation in Canada but they had a lot of similarities, you know, like um, they both 
uh, didn't have shoes in the summertime. They only got new shoes in the wintertime. You know, they, they both grew up without electricity or plumbing. And they both grew up listening to the Grand Ole Opry on a radio. And it was that radio listening to the Grand Ole Opry that made the world feel smaller. And it made it feel like, hey, maybe someday I can get out there, you know. And, and that inspired uh that inspired me to know. And then so when my mom shared that with Loretta, they got to hug. We hugged and we all shared stories and laughed and joked. And, and it was amazing. And then after Loretta Lynn walked away, me and my mom hugged and cried. And it was just like, we did it. We made it to Loretta. <laughs> and it was, you know, if nothing else happened and only that happened, that would have been everything. Absolutely. That's, that's amazing. Uh, you, you talk about the struggles your mom had and Loretta had. Um, you know, you've, you've shared some of your challenges like earlier in your career as an indigenous country artist. Um, can you talk a bit about that and some of the, you know, some of the challenges and prejudices that you had to deal with? Cause yeah, you for you sure. <laughs> you know, I, I, I wasn't, you know, when I moved to Nashville, well, growing up on the music scene, uh, you know, I started singing as soon as I could make noise. I was on stage at <laughs> six years old and started getting paid to do it when I was 10 and, started trying to make the circuits, you know, but pretty early on, I hit a lot of walls and a lot of ceilings. And, you know, and the th common thing that we were always told, like my parents and me was, you know, um, you know, maybe take her to the Indigenous Music Night or the Indigenous Music Hour, or, you know, she needs to be doing Indigenous music because that's who she is. Um, so we felt like we couldn't, there was no room to grow because of that. Mm -hmm. And so my dad was a truck driver and we started making trips to Nashville when I was like 12 years old. Wow. And, uh, and there was a much bigger world. Nobody said, you know, when I went to sing in Nashville in the beginning, you know, trying to sing at the honky tonks, nobody said, you know, what is she or what's her nationality or she can't sing country music. She's an indigenous person. Like, the people didn't even know what I was like. Sometimes people thought I was Hawaiian. Some people thought I was Brazilian. Some people thought I was, you know, Mexican. <laughs> so they didn't even know who I was. They were just, you know, and I was definitely the only uh, brown person on Broadway at that time <laughs> uh, trying to, you know, break through. Um, but when I did started to, you know, when I first moved to Nashville, I was 16 years old. And I was too naive to be scared, you know, because I mm -hmm. didn't hit those walls and those ceilings. So I had all this confidence and, uh, and I was just so excited to be there. Like I'm in Nashville, I'm here. I did it. I moved here. So I would knock on doors. I had no right to knock on, uh, record labels, publishers, management offices, agencies, you know, try, uh, you know, booking agents. And, um, you know, most of the time people would turn me away and be like, Hey, you know, you got to get your manager to book an appointment and um, that sort of thing. But sometimes I would get lucky. And one of the times I got lucky was at a really big record label. And uh, the guy was, I could see there was this guy walking in and he was jiggling his keys to go to the back where the offices are. And I'm trying to talk my way into meeting somebody with the receptionist. And she's, you know, giving me the old, you know, you, you know, we don't take unsolicited visitors. You can't just walk in here. And then the guy was like, hey, I got a couple of minutes. Come on in and sing a couple of songs for me. And I was like, OK. And he, he introduced himself when I knew who he was. Um, he was a very, uh, very famous producer. And um, 
had produced some of my most favorite albums from some of my favorite singers who inspired me to move to Nashville. Wow. And, uh, and, you know, and he was also at that time executive within a record label. And then, uh, so I sat down and I was very nervous, but I was excited to prove to him, you know, and I, I knew, I knew I wasn't ready, but I just wanted to know if I was wasting my time or not. Like, am sure. I on the right track? And, um, and so, and that's what I did a lot of time. I was looking for critique, you know, give me advice. What can I do to be ready? And so I sang the couple songs and then afterwards he said, well, you know, he was quiet for a couple minutes. Then he finally spoke and he said, your voice is amazing. Like I'm just, it's, it's huge. He's like, but I just wouldn't know what to do with you. You know, a native American within country music. I'm not sure if that makes sense. I wouldn't, you know, I don't know if country music fans are ready for that or, and I wouldn't even know how to market you, where to begin. And then I said, oh, okay. And I didn't really know what to say. And I wanted to cry. Um, you know, I was 17 years old and I was trying to be a big girl, real mature, you know, cause you know, it's the music business. There's no crying in baseball. <laughs> and uh, so I tried to be a big girl and said, oh, okay, thank you for your time. And I walked out and I left and I just kind of went into um, autopilot. You know, I'd go to work, do everything I'm supposed to, and next day start all over. And then a couple weeks later, um, I realized what was bothering me. I realized that I couldn't, uh, I couldn't work with what he gave me. You know, like if he said I was out of tune, I could go get voice lessons. If he didn't like my hair, I could get a new hairdo. But there was nothing I could do about the color of my skin. And uh, nor did I want to. I was happy with who I was. So I didn't see the problem. But the way he put it, it was like, oh, okay, so this is just never going to happen. It's not a possibility. So I should just probably quit then. So I, I and that's what I did. I, you know, a few weeks oh, okay. uh, later, I packed up and I went back home to my reserve. And I just basically um, slipped into a deep depression. You know, I started hanging out with people I wouldn't normally hang out with and um, started, you know, partying and drinking a lot and, um, you know, kind of spiraled backwards really fast. And uh, I was always a go-getter. I was very ambitious. So nobody had ever seen me like this before. And people within my community and my family were always telling me, you know, you know, go try again, you know, get back out there. You know, if I had what you had, I would be gone. And I would try to tell them, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, um, you don't know what it's like. And, uh, and I just would just quit. I kept telling people, I don't sing anymore. I'm not a singer. I'm going to school and I'm going to be a teacher. And then, uh, but people just wouldn't give up on me. People kept pulling me aside and telling me, you know, you've got to go back. You got to go back. And no matter what I did, I kept ending up back on a stage, back in front of a microphone, back in front of a guitar. And it just, you know, and then I just got tired of living the way I was living. And, um, and then I just decided that I was going to go back again. And this time I was going to go back because I just love to sing because that's who I am. And I'm not going back for a record deal. I'm not going back to become a big famous star. I'm going back because that's where I make sense because mm -hmm. back home, there's nowhere to sing. And when I can't sing, <laughs> I get into trouble. <laughs> and, uh, and that's what I did. And I went back to Nashville and I said, F that guy. And, and I just kept trying and I went, and sang at the clubs of Nashville on Broadway. I got a full-time gig and I started playing, you know, three to four shifts a day, six days a week. I was there from 10 a.m. to 2 a.m. 
um, living out of a tip jug. That's how I paid my bills. And, and, uh, and I realized that, you know, country music fans were ready for me because people were coming into that club and buying my CDs and my tip jug was overflowing. And, and I was just like, and, and that's what built it, built up the buzz that built up. And next thing you know, I had publishers, managers, producers, and labels courting me and a bidding war going on. And, uh, you know, and it just happened like that. And it just, you know, and, and that was one of the things I faced with being one of the first Indigenous artists to really push my way into country music. Were you, you. singing covers did you have your own material what was happening uh, when i played when i played yeah. for that guy i played a cover sure. which was my version of cheating heart by hank williams um it, which ended up <laughs> funny enough this that song ended up on my very first debut album dawn of a new day that i did with rca records um because i never gave up on that song it was like he didn't like it he didn't get it but I'm going to keep doing this song till somebody gets it. And eventually people got it. And RCA, that was actually, you know, when I did my showcase for RCA Records, that was the song. They were like, you're recording that and you're putting this on your first album. <laughs> so it's kind of funny, the song I auditioned with that, you know, that guy said no to is the one that got me all my success. And, um, but I did that and I also did an original. And, but when I played on Broadway for tips, I mostly did covers because- okay that's what keeps people in the seats that's what keeps people drinking and that's what keeps that tip jug full <laughs> fair enough and and that's what I, that's what it comes down to if you want to play broadway the owners of those bars they don't care if you can sing they just want to know if you can sell beer for them and that's it and i was a really good bad influence back in the day when i was a kid and that ended up coming in handy when i started singing in honky tonks <laughs> that's awesome what a great story have you by yes. the way crystal have you bumped into that guy? You must have. He must know who you are. I go, damn it. But <laughs> have you, you did know, you, you know, bump into I, him at I award did. shows? <laughs> I did. When, when I signed with RCA Records, they were looking for my producer. And so they would send down producers to watch me play at Tootsie so they can listen to me. And then after I would play, I would visit with them to see if we click or not. And he was one of the producers that they sent down. But the funny, he didn't remember me. He kind of did, but he didn't. He kept saying, did we meet somewhere before? <laughs> Do I know you from somewhere? And he Come kept saying on. that. And I was like, we met a long time ago. It's okay. You don't remember. I remember though. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, it was, he was very nice and he wanted to produce me and he was excited. He's like, I got so many ideas and nah. you know, I, I'm the producer for you. This is the one, you know? And, uh, and, uh, and then it just felt really good to say, uh, you know, I, I think at this time I'm going to go with another route, but thanks so much. I'm a big fan of your work, but I just feel like, um, you know, you're, you're not the one for me. <laughs> and that was it. And I never told him why. And I've never said his name because I don't feel like it's sure necessary. Not. It's, it's not going to do anything, you know. No. Um, he's, you know, he's he's still super successful, and um, and I know what it came down to. You know, it, he was scared. You know, it's he wasn't necessarily, um, you know, he was just scared. He mm. would have been the first, and that was a scary dice yeah. roll. And and in the music mm. business, you know, when you sign an artist to a record deal, you know, they're putting they're spending a million dollars on you. And that's a big, that's a lot of money to gamble on some dice, you know, and to gamble on an artist. 
And uh, and he was just afraid, you know, because if it didn't work out, if the country music fan base wasn't ready for me because I was indigenous, then he would have lost his job and his credibility. And, um, you know, and, it, and not everybody in the music, you know, there's some people out there who are part of this business who are really brave and bold and fearless. And he just wasn't one of them. <laughs> he's always done what is safe, but it always works. And that's why he's so successful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, Crystal, you, you become a successful country star. Like star. And, and then you wake up one day and say, I, I, th I think I want to go and do this blue stuff. You know? Uh, you know, I, it, it was amazing. It was amazing. I was so blessed. I, I Everything that happened was beyond my wildest dreams. Like for me, I just wanted to meet Loretta Lynn, you know, and that sing for a living, <laughs> sing for a living, you know? Fair. And then, you know, we ended up touring all over. We played every major music festival in Canada and America. I played the Grand Ole Opry several times. And, you know, we got our my album debuted on the Billboard charts. And, and it was amazing, you know, I, I couldn't really go anywhere at that time in Canada without being recognized. And um, and it was, it was incredible, but it was also, really intense you know because i was promoting an album not just in canada but america as well like in canada at that time if you wanted a hit record you only really needed to visit like eight key stations and mm -hmm. then you would be able to get a hit in america at the minimum you needed to visit at least 275 radio stations what? just with the hopes that oh maybe they might play you and that, and that's not even a guarantee. So that was the difference. So I would go up to Canada and with Sony Canada and we would visit the eight radio stations and the few TV stations. Then I go to America and I was like, you know, in one day we would like hit up four States and hit up all these radio stations. And it was so intense, you know, like, and, and, and like, early mornings, like getting up at 4 a.m. and going to bed at like 2 a.m. because we're schmoozing some radio programmer, you know, taking him out to dinner and spending $1,000 on his dinner and his wine and his champagne and, you know, and that sort of thing. And, and it was it was really intense. And what I say about that time in my life was it was a beautiful blur. But that's what it was, was a blur, um, you know, and, and it got to the point where I wasn't seeing my family anymore. Um, my parents, my my siblings, my nieces and nephews, you know, my my one nephew was five years old and he didn't know who I was. He knew I was Crystal Shawanda, but he never yeah. actually spent time with me because that's how busy my schedule was. And I just mm. I just got to a point where I just didn't like the way it was feeling. You know, I mm. was losing control of my life. Um, there was no quality of life. Yes, my career was booming. But everything else was lacking and I was depressed. I was lonely. I was in this bubble just floating around. And every once in a while the bubble would pop and I would sing. And then I'm back in the bubble again. And it was a very bizarre thing, you know. And 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 um and then I just didn't like the songs I was singing. Like when we were recording my third country album, I was sitting there listening back to all the songs we recorded, and I realized I didn't like any of them. Oh wow. But you know, but these were the kind of songs that we thought might get keep me on the radio. Mm. And, you know, because uh, country music at that time was starting to go into more of a real pop direction, you know, with loops and stuff like mm -hmm. that. And so that's what we were starting to do. And I just didn't like the way that felt. I didn't like the idea of sing recording and singing songs just because it might get me on the radio. 
um, you know, there was no message in any of the songs. There was nothing that I connected to personally. And, um, but we thought they would be hits and I just didn't like the way that felt. So I unplugged, I abandoned that third country album. And then I just took a couple months off to just live. And then one day I was watching the news and seeing all these horrible headlines all over the world. Like, you know, no matter who you are, what your background is, everybody's going through something, you know? And, and there was all this stuff going on that I had no idea was going on. And, and then I just picked up my guitar and I just started writing and it, and for once, I wasn't trying to write a hit song, you know, I was just writing for my own therapy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was just, I took it back to how I started songwriting. I was trying to understand the world around me. And, um, and so I sat there and the song was called The Whole World's Got the Blues. And my husband walked in and he's like, what is that you're writing? I'm like, I don't know, but I like it. And he sat down and we wrote it together. And that was the beginning for me. I was like, what do we do with this song? This is such an important message and it needs to get out there. But I knew country music was never going to look at that song or let it through the doors. And, um, and so around that time, you know, there was artistic differences with the label I was with. And so I decided to go out on my own and I started my own record label called New Sun Records and you know, and I told my husband, it's like, this is why we're doing this is because we want to remember who we are again, musically, artistically, creatively, personally, intimately, you know, and the only way we can do that is just take a chance, you know, and so because we owned our own record label, we could do whatever we wanted. So we did a blues album. And that was what led me to the blues. And that was the beginning of it all. And that was why I left country music. And you know, some of my country music fans took it very personal and um, and I tried my best to help them understand. But some people are just really mad, you know, like <laughs> some people send me messages and say, hey, just so you know, now that you don't do country music, I'm not coming to your shows anymore and buying your music anymore. And I was like, OK, thanks for telling me, <laughs> wow. you know, like at the end of the day, I'm just like everybody else. I'm just trying to figure out who I am, where I make sense, where I belong, where I fit in before I run out of time, you know, I, and I'm, and that's all I've been trying to do. And, and I just feel like within the blues is like letting a bird out of a cage. Like I can just be myself. I don't have to, because before when I was singing country music, I had to restrain my voice, you know, and my producer was always telling me, don't sing like that. You know, don't pinch, you know, don't hit those high notes too much because country music these days likes everything linear, you know, no trills, you know, don't get too fancy. We don't want to scare people off. And huh. with the blues, I could just let it fly. Yeah. I, I literally don't even have to think about it. I could just sing what I want. And everybody's like, that's cool. <laughs> and I'm like, I found my place. You know, I found where I fit in. Nice. That's awesome. And so fast forward to last year's Junos, you win blues album of the year. Is that 2021, right? Yeah, 2021. Uh, it was 20. Is it 2020? Eh? Is it 2020? Oh, yes, sorry, 2020. Sorry. Yes, okay. it was right at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. And, and I have to say, watching that, your daughter's reaction—that was the sweetest, sweetest Whoa. acceptance, if you will—that <laughs> I've, I've, I've ever seen. And again, it, it, I, the, the pandemic and virtual and everything just made it, made it the moment that it was. <laughs> Thank you. It was yeah. it was amazing. You know, when we were nominated, we were so thrilled, you know, because this was our our fifth. Was it our fifth blues album? 
Yeah, it was our fifth blues album. So it took us a long time to earn that Juno nomination for blues album. So we were just, you know, thrilled about that. And I honestly didn't think I was going to win because there were some amazing albums up that year. People that I, you know, artists that I truly respect and admire. Um, you know, I thought for sure it was going to go to Angel or Samantha. Uh, any one of them, honestly. I just didn't think it was me. And and before the awards, everybody was messaging each other and everybody agreed. They said, let's all dress up our top half, you know, like just kind of jokingly, like, let's let's still get in the spirit of it all. And I was like, yeah, OK. And, you know, I was rushing around with my daughter. It was National Pizza and Donut Day that day. So <laughs> oh I was like sending my husband out for donuts and pizza. And I'm more concerned about my daughter, you know. And and then I, I did my hair and makeup. Well, I just did my makeup. I just brushed my hair. And then I put I had my share T-shirt on. And, and, the sh- and my husband was like, the show was starting. I'm like, oh, I'll just leave it. Like, I, like they're going to see me for two seconds when they mention my nomination. And that's it. I'm not going to win. So nobody will even notice what I'm wearing. And then uh, so and then I saw where when William Prince was nominated, he had his son sitting in the little window with him. Right. So I was like, oh, we should do that, too. That's so cute. Josh, come sit with me. And then uh, so she came and sat with me and then they mentioned the nominations. We waved. And then I just kind of started like, oh, okay. well, anyways, we're done with this now. And then they said I won. And my husband was like, I think you just won. And I'm like, what? And then my daughter's like, oh, you definitely won. And she was so excited. She was hugging my head. And, oh, yeah. and then I got so confused about what I was supposed to do because they said, if you win, you know, after you, you know, win, go to the media room. But it just didn't occur to me that they meant, you know, you got to give your acceptance speech first and then go to the media room. But me, I was just like, oh, I won. I got to go to the media room. So I pressed the button, went to the media room. Then they're like, no, you got to accept your award. I'm like, what? And I'm like, how do I get back? And then I got back and I'm like, is it too late? Thanks, everyone. <laughs> and that was that, you know, and and uh, CBC ended up calling it the, the Juno Award for the cutest moment of the night was me and my daughter. And I was thrilled about that. I loved it, you know, because I just adore her and I bring her with me everywhere I go. I don't leave home without her. You know, if, if she can't be a part of it, then I can't be a part of it. Um, so she's usually always backstage right where I could see her. And um, she grew up in the studio on the stage. So it was really special to have her. And, you know, and although we were all going through all this frustrating and depressing and, you know, stuff through the pandemic, you know, having that little human moment um, was really special. And for me, I like, that would have never happened if we had attended the awards like normal, you know, we would have been sitting at the table and I would have went up and accepted it. And she would have been sitting there at the table, but this way she was able to be a part of it. So it was, it was pretty special. (laughs) That's great. Congrats Crystal on on that. And and congrats as well. We haven't, we're 45 minutes and we we haven't even spoken about your, your latest release, which, (laughs) which is midnight blues. Uh, which which came out uh, a few months ago, earlier this fall. Um, tell us about you know this album uh, and, and the inspiration for you know some of the songs that made it made it on the album. For sure, you know uh, this album. We actually recorded this throughout the whole pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as soon as we won that Juno Award, we went right back to writing and went back in the studio. Um, thankfully, we have a studio right in our home in Nashville. So we just kept working. We stayed in our bubble and we worked and we wrote and recorded and sent ideas to the label in Canada. And we went back and forth and um, and, and just created it. And, you know, so some of the albums kind of reflect 
kind of what we were going through, but I don't get too specific about it. You know, like, like Midnight Blues, you know, um, I call the album that because something I kept seeing during the pandemic is like, you know, sometimes I wouldn't be able to sleep, you know, and so you get up in the middle of the night, you're worried because you don't even know what's going on in the world. Like, is, is this a conspiracy? Is this real? Is this the end of the world? What's happening? You know, uh-huh. and so you get up at like 2 a.m. and go to Facebook and you start scrolling and there's a whole bunch of other people on Facebook who are like, how am I going to pay my bills or you know, me and my, me, you know, me and my partner realized we're not right for each other through this pandemic. And he moved out and mm-hmm. now I'm here oh, alone. My. And, you know, there was all this stuff. And, but it seems like no matter what gets us down, it always hits us the most in the middle of the night. And uh, so we all get those midnight blues and, you know, we all get the blues. And that was the point in calling the album that. And then there's songs like um, Take a Little Walk with the Moon is a song that me and my husband, who's my guitar player and producer, we actually wrote this song with our daughter, Jaja. Um, oh. Yeah, the little girl in the acceptance speech wrote that's co-wrote that song with us. Because um, that was, it was kind of something we did during the pandemic when we would get, uh, you know, it wasn't safe to go out during the day. There's too many people. We didn't know what was going on. Still so much uncertainty. So we would go for night walks because there's less people out. So we would... Uh, you know, as soon as the sun was setting, we'd go for our night walks into neighborhoods that we love to go to. And so one night we were going out and our daughter said, come on, mommy and daddy, let's go take a little walk with the moon. And we were like, oh, that would make a great song. And we just started writing it while we were walking. And by the time we were done our walk, we pretty much finished the idea of the song and got home and Dwayne picked up his guitar and started, you know, with the melody. And it just happened so quickly. So that song is really reflects what we went through as a family, you know, we went through some, you know, real bonding and, and, you know, it was, we were in our own little world, but we were okay. We were together. We were safe. We had food. We had a roof over our head and um, we just kind of uh, embraced the moment, you know, and, and that's what I kept trying to encourage people to do. Just embrace the moment. Let's not fight it because we're just going to frustrate ourselves, you know? And so there's a song on the album called hold me. And that's really about like, let's get back to who we are. You know, let's remember, just hold me. Let's just remember who we are. You know, you get, we get stuck in this rat race of trying to pay bills and, you know, reach goals in our careers that we forget what it's all about and it's, and who it's for. It's for each other, our families, our partners. And, um, and so, yeah. And then there's feel good songs like how bad do you want it? Which is a song we wrote just as we were coming out of the pandemic last year, when we were just starting to play shows again. And we were just like, you know, we were rolling the dice and people were like, are you sure you want to get out and play shows? And we're like, yes, we do. <laughs> and, you know, it's our risk, you know, and, and, you know, we were still wearing masks because we didn't want to get sick. But at the same time, we needed to start living again. And as musicians, that's our income. So we, we kind of had to. <laughs> yeah, fair <laughs> so, enough. Uh, you know, and then there's, and then there's fun songs called like rum shaker that just is just about getting people to get out and dance. And cause we were thinking about when we get back to live music, what do we, what can't we wait for? And that was the thing we couldn't wait for the most was seeing people at our shows dancing. So it's a little bit of everything. It's really a celebration of life. Awesome. That's great. That's great. Crystal, let's talk about lost venues. Um, and, and maybe there's one in, in Nashville that you can talk about because you've been there for, for, for a while now. Um, but is there a place that no longer exists that you have maybe fond memories of? Maybe you have a horror story or a funny story 
Uh, wonder if you could share one of your lost venues with us. Lost venues. Oh my goodness. There's so many, unfortunately, you know, that mm -hmm. don't um, exist anymore and that I could go on and on about of good memories and bad memories. But one of them um, for me, when I first moved to Nashville that I used to go to a lot was a place called the Broken Spoke Saloon. And it had two parts to it. The front part was like a bar and they had pool tables and a dance floor. And the band there always did like, you know, top country songs, like hit country songs, you know, cover songs. And then the back of the place was, was the songwriters cafe. And so that's where they would have songs in the round, you know, songwriters mm. come in. And you just never knew who you were going to hear. Like I would go there as many nights as I possibly could. And, um, and then I would get up to sing at the end of the night. Cause that's where all only the newbies always had to sing at the end of the night when mostly everybody's gone, you know, <laughs> but we would go early to listen to the masters so we can learn how to become better songwriters, hopefully meet a songwriter that we could write with, you know, network. And, um, you know, like, <clears throat> and, uh, I have great memories and I have bad memories, but it, what's really cool about it is that there was a lot of other Canadians hanging out there at the time too, like um, Victoria Banks, Vicky Banks, who's an amazing songwriter from Canada, uh, from the Muskoka area. Um, she's had a few different hits and she's been living in Nashville since back then as well. And I remember somebody saying, she's from Canada. I'm like, what? That's so cool. And then she was one of my favorite writers and one of my favorite voices. And I used to just sit there and listen to her songs and think, oh, I hope someday I can, you know, record one of her songs, um, which I eventually did on my first Dawn of a New Day album. One of my songs was co-written with her. So that was a dream come true for me, um, you know, watching her because she was on her way at that time. You know, she was already building a buzz up. She had a publishing deal. And then uh, one time they had a Canadian night there and Carolyn Don Johnson was brought in for the Canadian night. And this mm -hmm. was just after she hit big. She was, her first hit was just starting to climb the charts. And she came there and I got to meet her. So that was inspiring uh, for me as well. And, um, you know, and also I heard, um, the song A Little Past Little Rock by Leanne Womack. I remember hearing the guy who wrote it, singing it on the stage and saying, hey, great news, everybody. I just found out today that this song is going to get cut by Leanne Womack. And then a few weeks later, I mean, a few months later, hearing it on the radio. And I was like, I was there. You know, I heard it before it was like famous wow. and cut. And, you know, those kind of experiences. Um, who else? The Wilkinsons. I remember they came in for a songwriter's night when they were just mm. starting to get attention and take off. And um, so I have a lot of really cool memories, you know, and then I also figured out through that club that, um, you know, you know, cause when you go to Nashville, you either go for the honky tonks and, you know, do that kind of style, or you go to songwriters nights and do the quiet singer songwriter thing. Well, through the process, I found out that maybe I wasn't the quiet singer songwriter type. <laughs> I thought I was, but I found out I wasn't because I started to get restless. I was getting frustrated because they would always put me on last and nobody was ever there when it was time for me to sing. And then so one night I saw that they were having a singing contest at the bar in the front where they play the cover songs. And it was the prize was like $500. And I was like, so broke, no money for gas. You know, I had like a can of Chef Boyardee in my cupboard and some ramen noodles. And so I decided that I'm going to go enter that contest while I'm waiting to sing here. So I go enter the contest. I ended up winning. 
nice. came back and I'm like, is it time for me to sing yet? And the lady running the night was like, you know, Crystal, people here respect each other. We all sit and listen to each other. And that's what it's all about. And I was like, really? Because nobody ever sits and listens to me. By the time I get up, everybody's gone. So where's that mutual respect? And then as she says, well, if you're going to be like that, then maybe you should go back to those kind of bars with the honky tonks and the live bands and the drunk people. And I said, I picked up my guitar and I said, you know what? I think I will because I have a lot more fun over there. Bye. What? And that was it. And that was the goodbye to my singer songwriter, quiet uh, style. And I, that's when I made my way down to Broadway and uh, started singing for tips out of the tip jug and, you know, getting people going and making them, uh, you know, drink a lot more than they originally planned to. <laughs> so, and it was a lot of fun. I had so much fun. People would come down to those honky tonks and, you know, and they're all trying to be prim and proper. And by the time I was done with them, they were dancing on tables. <laughs> That's awesome. So that's that's my memories about the broken spoke saloon, which just recently we drove by it. It sat empty for years and now it's completely gone. It's now a parking lot. And oh, that's no. the end of the broken spoke saloon. <laughs> they wow. paved paradise and put up a parking lot. They really did. And oh, there's nothing goodness. there, it's just a parking lot. It's like, okay. <laughs> wow. Wow. Um speaking of of uh, to me, an iconic musician. I know with the passing of Ronnie Hawkins, Ron Hawkins, um, the just the earlier this year, um, you you shared that if I'm not mistaken, again bringing it back to the Manitoulin, that the first time you sang with him was in Kagawa. Yes, it correct? was. They had. Uh, oh, I can't even remember what it was. It was some big event. It was like a big music. It was like. The first time they ever had it and they were going to have it every year, but they didn't, but it was fantastic. I remember they had like, it was so much fun. They had live music. They had like these boats that were taking people for rides on those, um, you know, like the tubes and the water skiing. Mm -hmm. And there was like tug of war going on and people were drinking and dancing. It was so much fun. And, and I got to go there and my parents took me there and somebody hired me to sing. But then when I got there, I got to meet Ronnie Hawkins and his band and I was invited to sing with them. So I was like 11 years old when I got up to sing with them. And it was just so funny because you're right. Like if people only knew like Kagawong is like, is like way in the backwoods of Manitoulin. And uh, just the other, you know, few couple months ago, we were driving by there. And I was like, I still can't believe Ronnie Hawkins came all the way out here. And then I sang with him again later, um, a mutual friend of ours, uh, uh, named Charlie Bear. He was uh, he used to help me out a lot when I was a kid. He would hire me to sing and pay me more than I deserved. And uh, he would always hire Ronnie Hawkins too. So we would always be his entertainment for all his private parties. So yeah, Ronnie okay. was a big influence and knowing everywhere that Ronnie had been and everything he had accomplished, how he had influenced so many other people. Uh, that gave me a lot of inspiration of, and hope that, you know, I could do that too. I could go out in the world and I could travel and play music and the world is not as big as we think it is. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So uh, we've got one minute left. I have one quick question um, before we sign off. Um, what are you listening to lately that people should be checking out? What am I listening to lately? Oh my goodness. Oh, there's so many. Um, I love Yola. Yola is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite singers right now. I just think she's ex exquisite. Uh, Brittany Howard, I love her. Brandy Carlisle. Um, 
Uh, there's there's so many out there. Joanne Shaw Taylor, Joe Bonamassa. Um, there's so many out there. Those are just a few that just off there. Samantha Fish. I love Samantha Fish. Southern Avenue. Fantastic. Awesome. Thank you. That's a lot of great music. Yeah, for nice. sure. A lot of great music. <laughs> so I'm wondering, Crystal, with, with you and uh, uh, William Prince being buddies, have you told him, like, is, is he going to make the move to the blues? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think William's doing great, just great with what he's doing. Uh, you know, that's what's so cool about William is he knows exactly who he is, you know, and he's not afraid to be who he is. And that's, I think that's what so many of us love about him. It's very refreshing. Yeah. You know, and um, he's always just been super cool. He's one of my favorite humans and artists, you know, because a lot of times, you know, he always, every time I see him, he always reminds me of how I inspired him and how he wow. used to walk on TV. And, you know, and then when we sang on the Canada Day show, he's like, he, I remember him telling me that. It's amazing. I watched you on TV and now I'm going to be on TV singing beside you. And, you know, and, and there's nobody's ever... It's very rare that singers will let their guard down and mm. confess to you what you mean to them. So mm. I always appreciate William telling me that because when he told me that was at a time in my career when I wasn't sure if I was going to make it, like I was like, oh. is this it? Am I winding down? You know, and then after he shared that story with me and Brett Kissel shared the exact same story with me. Wow. I remember thinking, wow, thank you. I really needed that right now in my life. Like you guys mm. have no idea how much I needed that, you know, um, it really encouraged me and it helped me hold on for yes. all this other awesome stuff that's been happening since then. So, uh, you know, I always try to do the same for other artists. Hey, you inspired me because we never know what that could mean to them and uh, how much it could change their path. Thank you so much for sharing that, Crystal. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Crystal, this has been an amazing chat thank you so much thank you for, i appreciate you guys thank you thank so you. much for putting I, I me in i literally have dozens of questions that i haven't even got to so oh part two <laughs> part two well, we'll have to do it again then yeah, that'd be great I would you know, have that you we'll all we'll all meet up on the manitoulin i mean he's come up to my place numerous <laughs> times we'll we'll time it when you're up there we'll come up there and we'll film the next uh part two from that would be so awesome and thank you again for being so understanding when i missed the thing i I was just, I was just sick. And I just, honestly, I was just out of it. I just lost, dropped so many balls that week. It's all good. It's all no good. worries. Thank you. I appreciate that. Crystal, thank you again. Our guest has been Crystal Shawanda. Her latest Midnight Blues is out now. Uh, you can find that album uh, as well as her music. Tour dates at crystalshawanda.co. Go check it out. Uh, this has been awesome. Thank you so much, Crystal. Thank, Thank you. you so much. I appreciate it. Have a great day, everyone. <laughs> Bye.